Welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas, and we are coming close to the end of our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. And man, I, I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope it has helped you. I've, I've done my best to just point out some connections and some observations along the way um, without... Uh, explaining maybe absolutely everything. I know sometimes that's kind of maybe what people people want, but my that really wasn't the goal here for me in this season anyway, in this series of the podcast. Uh, my goal here was more uh, to just maybe be a kind of a guide that, to point things out as we move along together. And uh, hopefully, to, I, I really think this this series only really works if you're actually... Uh, reading the text and going along with, uh, because you need to see and read some of it for yourself. So hopefully you're doing that. But as we come to uh, close to an end here, uh, I want to just say thank you already in ahead of time here for for listening. And I do hope it's been a blessing to you. So we're gonna we're gonna jump into Nehemiah 11 and 12, which is kind of the climax of. The entire narrative, or really the the false climax of the entire narrative, as we'll see uh, in in chapter thirteen. So, with that, let let's uh, let's jump into Nehemiah eleven and twelve. All right, Nehemiah eleven. In 12, uh, for the most part, probably not the most exciting reason, re, uh, reading in, uh, in, in the Old Testament or even just in this scroll. Probably not a great way to start off an episode, but hey, let's just be real. Uh, it's a lot of names. It's a lot of lists and, uh, in, in these two chapters, but they are there for a reason, and we'll make a few comments along the way. But I, I do... I do actually want to spend the bulk of this episode uh, talking about the actual dedication service because that is that is the climactic scene of the whole book, and uh, and so I think we should uh, just recognize that and and spend most of our time there. Um, but Nehemiah eleven, we got to say a few things before we get there. Nehemiah eleven opens where Nehemiah's account left off in. 7-4 with the repopulating of Jerusalem. So if you just read um, the, the narrative, you'll notice in in 7-4, and I'm just going to actually turn there here real quick. Uh, in 7-4, Nehemiah uh, is setting the gates up and the doors up and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites in their place. Do you remember he gave his brethren a Hanani, he put him as governor over Jerusalem, and um, he's giving kind of commands of how to set everything up. And then in verse 4, it says the city was wide and large, uh, but the people within it were few, and there were no houses that had been built. And then we we get kind of a, a shift. Verse 5 is kind of this hinge where they find the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, and we kind of get this uh, shift in the narrative that then takes us into mainly the the 
recommitting of God's people to the law, and all of a sudden, uh, Nehemiah is not the main character, uh, but Ezra, you may have noticed in the last episode that Ezra was the main character. And so we get a, a, a clear shift in the story. I think most likely um, the original Nehemiah manuscript, the part that he wrote, just flowed from uh, 7, 4, and 5, and then probably right into this um, in chapter 11. Uh, the, the story just makes more sense that way, and it was probably later edited uh, to to be the, what we have now, where the uh, Ezra becomes the main character, and Nehemiah isn't really even present at all. I think there's only one reference to him in in that whole section uh, from the second half of seven all the way through ten, and uh, and clearly Nehemiah is not the one writing it either. And so it's clearly a different source material there. So we're, we're picking off here now where the city has been rebuilt. Um, and But in 7.4 that we just read, that you know, there was few few people and it said that no houses had been rebuilt. So the, the city's rebuilt, but it has not been repopulated yet. And so now in chapter 11, if we just make that basic connection. And again, that's just from careful reading to say, making the observation that it goes from Nehemiah being the main character through 7, 4, and 5, and then all of a sudden it switches to Ezra, and we're all of a sudden doing like renewal services and Torah and all of that kind of stuff. And now we're back to, without really any explanation, we're back to 11.1. And now the leaders of the people who lived in Jerusalem. So 7.4 said that nobody lived in Jerusalem. And now we're talking about people who lived in Jerusalem. And now we're talking about people re-inhabiting all of the cities, including Jerusalem, but all of the cities that were given to them previously. And so the list in chapter 11 uh, flows in that narrative structure, which just, I think makes it make a lot more sense. And uh, and so we get uh, a kind of set of uh, lists of the chiefs and the sons of Judah and then the sons of Benjamin. Uh, then we get the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers, uh, the overseers, the sons of Asaph. And all of this is linked to uh, the the land and the cities and the villages uh, of their inheritance. So this is, again, linking them back to the time under Joshua when the people came into the land and they began to divide the land to different tribes and families and different uh, people and tribes settled in different places. So again, this is being uh, this is a, a being portrayed as a recapitulation of the people coming into the promised land and and populating it. This is the fulfillment of God's people uh, taking the land that he has given to them. And so the inheritance language uh, is kind of all over this entire section. And it is just continuing to strengthen that connection that we've seen time and time again throughout this book of connecting these people with the people of 
the Israel of the past, if, if you could say it that way. And so um, that really takes us through chapter 11. Chapter 11 is essentially one giant list, uh, and it doesn't really make sense unless you see that connection between uh, 11 and, uh, and chapter 7, and then what exactly uh, the list is, is trying to do as far as using language of inheritance to make it appear to be like the days of Joshua, where the land is being filled again. And and again, 7, 4, and 5 of, of Nehemiah said that the, the, the city was empty, right? So this is fulfillment language. It was empty, and now it's filled and being filled in its proper order, right? And I, I think you could even draw a loose connection there to the Eden narrative, where the 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 land and the animals are all being ordered in their proper way, right? And so there's this ordering of God's creation. There's this ordering of God's city. There's this ordering of God's people uh, that clearly links to Joshua. But I think you could even even make a, a Genesis connection there as well. So um, chapter twelve then opens with two sets of additional but related lists. So verses 1 to 7 detail the names of the priests and Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, and then 12 through 21 detail the priests and the Levites who served after that first generation uh, to come back. And the two lists are paired together as a way to tie the entire story as a single narrative. So in that list... Again, we, we think lists are boring, but what the author is clearly trying to do is verse 1 through 7 references Zerubbabel and the priests and the Levites under Zerubbabel. That's the very beginning of our story in Ezra, you know, 1, 2, and 3. And then in verses 12 through 21, it's uh, the Levites and the priests who served after that generation up until now. And so they are they're building a bridge between there saying that this is all one story this is all one narrative this is all one act of god and sandwiched in between in verses 8 through 11 so in between those two lists um in verses 8 through 11 are the levites who served under zerubbabel and literally act as the bridge between the two generations Right, so you get you get these two lists of the Levites and priests who were with Zerubbabel, the ones who came after, and then sandwiched in between uh, are are those who actually served when Zerubbabel uh, came back, and so the, this is the the bridge b- between the two. And then that that list kind of brings us to um, what is the climactic scene of the entire book. And that is Nehemiah 12, 27 through 43. And this is, it's really hard when we're talking about narrative. Any narrative that we consume, whether it's a book or a movie, um, it has a climax. And everything is building 
to that climax. And everything is about that climax. The whole world that the author constructs is to make that climax pay off, so to speak. And this is our climactic moment in this story. And everything, everything, not just in this story, but the authors have worked really hard to show that this work starts even long before them, but everything is leading towards towards this moment. And they're caught up into that story. They're part of that story. So by now, the temple has been completed. The Torah has been read. The covenant has been renewed. The walls have been, been rebuilt. And now everything is done and the people gather together in Jerusalem to dedicate the walls to the Lord. Now, you may have thought that this kind of ceremony would have taken place when the temple was completed. Um, and maybe there was some kind of celebration, but it isn't, it isn't explicitly mentioned. But what is clear in the narrative is that this is the, the climactic moment, right? Uh, previously, obviously under, most famously under Solomon, uh, and, and you have to read the Solomon story, of his dedication of the temple and God coming down in their midst. You have to read that alongside of, of this because they're, this is clearly an image meant to be an image of that, from the grandeur to the ceremony itself to the, the trumpets and the singing and the Levites and the invocation and everything is is echoing off of that Solomon ceremony. So you have to read those two together. But Solomon obviously did it after the temple was built. And the the tabernacle, or the, the temple here, the second temple, um, by now was completed, you know, by this time, over 50 years ago. Um, the temple was completed, depending on how you exactly date everything, somewhere around like 516 BC, and we're now 440, something in that range, uh, depending on how exactly the timing of everything we would understand. But so it's over 50 years, you know, somewhere between 50, 60, maybe 70 years um, have passed since the, the temple was completed. And so you would think that this kind of ceremony would have taken place then, and maybe there was one, but it isn't recorded. Uh, but it takes place after the wall, and I think, I think the the reason for that is, is that the temple and the Torah, and the city itself, in the the mind of the biblical writers, are all linked together. You can't really separate them, because it it is it's written in the Torah in the law and in the prophets and the psalms that the nations will come to Jerusalem to the temple to hear God's word spoken to them right so you you can't take any three out of those and have have that work so you have to have all three present and so there's no reason really to throw the big ceremony when one of them is still 
has still not happened, right? So you have the temple, but you haven't had a renewal service to the covenant, and the city is not what it needs to be, right? So it's only after those things happen that all three elements are are in place, and then we can have the we can have the big dedication. And also, I think a third reason is that in the mind of the biblical authors and the prophets in particular, we tend to think of exile as something to do with geography. That well, they left Babylon and Persia, and so that means exile's over because they're back in the land. And we tend to think about it in just pure geographic, uh, purely geographically. But they don't think about it that way. Clearly, it is part of it. You you can't be there in Babylon and exile be over. You have to leave Babylon. But exile really isn't truly over until the Messiah reigns as king over people from Jerusalem so that the nations can flow to Jerusalem, to the temple, and hear God's word like we we just got done saying. And so for them at this moment, because the Messiah has still not come and they're still waiting on that because they still have already recognized that something is missing, exile is not really over yet. Because if it was, God's Messiah would be there. His anointed king would be there. The temple's rebuilt, so that's ready, but God still hasn't come. They've renewed the commitment to the covenant. Now they've rebuilt the city, and everything is ready to go. So we can dedicate those things. So now all that's left is the Messiah that is to come. But exile doesn't really end until all of those things take place until all those things take place. And so the dedication narrative itself is set within multiple references to joy and this being a joyous day. So at the very beginning in verse 27 and at the very end in verse 43, we get these references to joy. So they kind of form this um, this little inclusio is what it's called, meaning that there's a uh, a referent at the very opening, at the very end of something that kind of form, think of them as brackets. And so everything in between those brackets are related to each other. And this then also pairs with the dedication of the temple under Zerubbabel, where there was also joy. And so you have, you have this small set of brackets here, verses 27 and 43 of the two references to joy. But then you also have this really big set of brackets that goes all the way back to the day of Zerubbabel when the temple is being dedicated and the reference to joy there. And it was mixed with weeping, but there it was a joyful day. And that is one bracket that's also paired here with verse 43 of Nehemiah 12 and, and how the whole that those brackets form what is supposed to be anyway, the whole positive story of coming out of exile, rebuilding, restoring, recommitting themselves, renewing the covenant, and all of that is is related into one story itself. And so the 
the dedication, excuse me, the dedication service itself was, I mean, it was a spectacle. Um, front and center and most obvious, there's these two huge caravans of people that, that walk on top of the walls. One, it says they go up to the stair, they go up these stairs and they go to the right and the other one goes to the left until they nearly enclose. They don't quite make it around the whole city, but they almost enclose the entire city on top of the wall. And if you remember earlier, one of the mock, uh, the mockeries of Tobiah uh, in Nehemiah 4, is he said, even if a, a single fox climbs up on the wall, it will crumble. And I think, I think uh, this is a show of, of their victory over that, over that mock. And um, so the, the whole scene then is this kind of, um, kind of this, this victory. Now, I think there is one link uh, that is also worth noting here. I already mentioned the, the Solomon one, but there's, and that's, I think, the obvious one. But there's another one that I want to explore here for just a second, and that is uh, with Psalm 48, specifically verses 12 through 14. I actually want to read a good part of the psalm. And then 12 and 14 are the final three verses. And um, so again, picture the scene. Everything is completed, the temple, the Torah, the wall. And now these two huge caravans of Levites and trumpets and singers and priests, they've, they've gone up and they're being led by the, the leaders of, of Israel. One goes to the left, one goes to the right. They basically encircle the whole city and uh, all of the people have come to gather, and there's clear echoes of Solomon when all of the people gathered, and they sang, and they prayed, uh, and that was when fire came down into the temple, and God dwelt among his people, and I think that's clearly the expectation that something maybe like that would happen here in, in this scene. It, it obviously does not, but I, I think they the author or the people there expected maybe something like that would happen. That, that That's clearly in the, in the background anyway. But anyway, uh, Psalm 48, I think, is also in the mind of either the author and how he's framing it or uh, in Nehemiah and Ezra themselves as they're kind of directing this entire entire thing. So, so Psalm 48, I just want to read, read some portions of this here. Um, it says this, starting just in verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. Now, again, pause right there. We've already got a reference to the city, which we've just been rebuilt. And we've also got a reference to his holy mountain. Now, that mountain, which he says is beautiful in elevation and is the joy of the whole earth. That mountain, I think, has probably two reference. One is, is just Mount Zion, where the city of Jerusalem was on, and particularly the Temple Mount was on Mount Zion. But also, we have Sinai is called the mountain of the Lord. And throughout the scriptures, uh, those images of Mount Zion and Mount Sinai 
are used and connected back and forth with one another because they are meant to be they are meant to be seen as connected in in some way and it's the joy of the whole earth and we've all already we've already noted the the uh, the brackets of the inclusion of joy in this section so uh, his holy mountain beautiful in elevation is the joy of the whole earth mount zion in the far north the city of the great king within her citadels god has shown himself a sure defense for lo the kings assembled and they came together and as soon as they saw it they were astounded and they were panicked and they took to flight this is the the conquering of god's enemies yeah and we've we've noted sanballat and tobiah and all the other enemies of god so there's this victory over god's enemies uh in the city of in the city of jerusalem uh let's let's skip down to um to verse uh, 9 and we have thought on your steadfast love o god in the midst of your temple okay now we have the temple being brought into into the picture and as your name o god so uh the pra- uh, so your praises reaches to the ends of the earth so now we're having praises going out from the temple in the midst of the temple so in the poem here uh, nine and ten are are uh, connected to each other and verse nine has this very specific in the midst of the temple so they thought of God's steadfast love in the midst of the temple and God's name which corresponds with his steadfast love it reaches out to the ends of the earth so it goes from in the midst of your temple to the whole earth and that is the movement that we've been tracking and the prophets track, uh, and that we've been tracking this entire series, is that what this was supposed to be is God coming amongst his people, his Messiah ruling from Jerusalem, and all of the nations coming to Jerusalem, and God's word and name and glory covering the earth as the water fills the sea. That's how this is supposed to go, right? And so I think this is exactly what is on the mind of Ezra, Nehemiah, and the author in this dedication service and you'll see that here in just one second when we get to verse 12 and so um, as your name O god so let your praises reach to the ends of the earth in your right hand uh, uh your right hand is filled with victory let mount zion be glad there's another reference to joy and let the daughters of judah rejoice because of your judgment now verse 12 verse 12 through 14 walk about zion meaning walk around her and go around about her and number her towers consider well her ramparts go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is god our god forever and ever and he will be our guide forever and ever and i think there is this clear connection with Go around Zion, walk around her, walk around, number her towers, talking about her beauty and her power and her completion. Go through all of her citadels, talking about her her beauty and her splendor and the blessing of God uh, upon the city. And then that completion, that state of of zion of the city that when you walk around and you see what she is like and the joy and the beauty um, 
and the power and the strength and the victory of God that we read about in the previous verses. It says, see all of these things that you would tell the next generation that this is God. And I think as Ezra and Nehemiah are telling the, the way they orchestrate this dedication service to send the people to the, these two large companies to the left and to the right, to go around Zion, to, to notice her towers and her bulwarks, and to declare the works of God, and as a message to the people there, and obviously then the author as a message to us, saying, this is God. This is God. This is the day. Right, the, the commandment of the psalm, say to the next generation. And it's, if, it's as if the author of Ezra Nehemiah and its later compilers are completing that task. They are saying to us, the next generation, this work is and was the work of God. This is Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the one who is beautiful in elevation, the whole earth. His name, His glory, His word, His splendor goes out to all of the nations, to all of the earth from this place. This is God, and He is our guide. He is our King forever and ever because this is the city of the great King. I think all of that is underneath this dedication, this dedication service. And so we, we come to then the end of here, kind of the, the second... Um, or the second major section of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if the story ended there, it would be it would be both a little confusing, but it would be wonderful. It would be a little confusing because what you would expect to happen, God coming in their midst, or the Messiah coming in their midst, would happen, but it doesn't. But it would be splendid and and a victory because of all that God had done and because of the proclamation that they seem to be making in that very moment, that this is the hand of God. This was God's doing. This is the city of the great king, and God is in our midst. And so that brings us to the close, and that brings us straight into what is the point of the whole book. And if we, I'll, we'll talk more about this in the next episode, but everything, however Ezra Nehemiah was compiled and written and put together, how we have it now, which is really the only thing that matters, I think how we see the connection between everything that we've read and talked about so far and what happens in chapter 13 in this final section Everything depends on that. And if we don't see that, we don't actually see the message of the book. And so I hope you'll join me for our final episode, walking through the book and uh, and coming to some final conclusions. I think I, we're, we'll just do, uh, in the final episode here, we'll do um, chapter 13 and then some overall observations. I think we'll just do that all in one episode. I think it would be probably better that way. So this next episode uh, will be the final one in this series and in this season. And so I hope you'll join me for it and um, we'll see you 
in about a week or so when that one drops.